You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. So tonight is uh, your will be done. We talked about uh, your kingdom come, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Both of those are very, very similar in some ways. Your kingdom coming, we talked about how we want that to happen here on earth as it is in heaven and we're asking that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the first observations to make as we ask the Lord to do something, um, as we ask our Heavenly Father, is that God is good, He is pure, He is holy, He is beautiful, He is just. He is Himself the standard for our understanding of these things. He doesn't obey some standard that exists. This is how I grew up thinking more or less. He doesn't obey a standard that is out there and simply always does the pure and holy and righteous and just thing. He doesn't do that. Out of the nature of who God is, he sets the standard. He is himself the golden standard by which we understand all of these concepts, such as beauty and justice and purity and righteousness and goodness. Another way to say it, is that God is not a cosmic force. We've been through this a little bit, but we need constant reminding of this as uh, distractible people. He's not a cosmic force who's powerful. He is a father. He is a person, our God is. In other words, he's personal. He is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. He actually has desires. In other words, so when we say your will be done, one thing that we're saying is that we're asking, I should say, we're requesting, petitioning the Lord, I want, Lord, what you desire, your desires be done, your will be done. What the Lord has or what the Lord wants, what the Lord desires is what we want to ask him to do. And so he's a person. He's personal. He does things and he wants things. And this is what we're requesting. We're requesting that that would Happen, And so as an introductory, uh, we touched on this a little bit with that kingdom come, um, but I have to touch on it again. When you ask and we talk about God having a will, your will be done, um, theologians, various people have distinguished what we call the two wills of God. This is theological categories. You're not going to find the phrase the two wills of God in the Bible. And so you got to consider this. You have to think about is this true or not. There's various reasons. There's a lot longer argument to be made for this than I'm going to give you. But this is actually going to be on the screen as well. Oh, right there. Two wills of God. Uh, The first one is what we call his sovereign, his efficacious wills. Um, I put up there, uh, borrowed from somebody, the secret will of God. It's something that we don't really have access to exactly. Um, We call it sovereign. We call it efficacious. Efficacious essentially means it makes things happen. And something is efficacious. It's successful it affects things so a verse like amos uh what was it again amos 3 6 has disaster come to a city unless the lord has done it has disaster come unless the lord has done it and there's a very long litany of verses that we could point to that clearly the lord has this i'll say mysterious oftentimes incomprehensible hard for us to understand perhaps even difficult to understand to uh, accept sovereign will over all things has a disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it it's quite a statement if you sit back and reflect upon that 
we put that under a category, I put it under a category to some degree of sovereign will of God. God isn't like an evil man who kills people. God is, God's will isn't evil. His desires aren't for any evil ends ever. Yet there is a sense in which he is sovereign over all things. When we're talking about asking God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not talking about this will exactly. We're talking about more what we might call the revealed will of God. We're requesting that God's revealed will of God, his revealed will would be done. His moral, his prescriptive will, what he prescribes, what he says to do, do not kill, love the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. These are things that aren't done often. And so we're asking, Lord, may this be done. Make this happen. So this is the will we're talking about. If the uh, first will piques your interest, as I hope it does, or burns a little bit of something in the back of your mind that goes, what in the world? I've never thought or read the verse in Amos 3.6 that says that. Uh, talk to me later. Um, please come to me. I highly, highly encourage it. It's a very important topic. But when we're asking God's will to be done, it's more. this is what we're talking about. This is what we're asking. Lord, may your will be done. And so the petition is basically that. <clears throat> the petition, the thing you're asking when we pray, Lord, may your will be done, is that obedience to God's will would increase. That's what you should be asking. That's what should be in your head, in your heart. I want obedience to our Heavenly Father's desires to increase here on the earth. That's what I want. That's what I'm asking God to make happen. And there's a couple ways to talk about this. Um, One, and this is very similar to the kingdom coming, is an internal request you're asking the Lord to do something in you, and you ought to be, that would be, Lord, I want to be more obedient to what you want. Make that happen for me. Cause that to happen inside of me. I said the same category as two weeks ago as, as an internal reality. It's inside your heart. It's in your will. It's in the thing center of us as human beings that chooses and wants and desires. We're, we're wanting creatures. And so you're asking... Lord, make that more true for me. And the Psalms, tons of verses talk this way. This is one of the most impactful for me. Um, is a bunch of Psalm 119, actually, quite a bit, but a couple verses, 34 and 36. He's requesting, he's asking the Lord, uh, God, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Hear that. This is the request of the psalmist who, who wrote scripture. He says... Give me understanding, grant it to me, Lord, for what purpose? That I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Why? Because he doesn't. Not with his whole heart. He doesn't have enough understanding, and he doesn't observe the law with his whole heart, so he asks the Lord, make this happen in me. Come down with your spirit and go zap and cause my heart in all the ways that the Lord would do that to love your, uh, your law. Or two verses later, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn my heart. It has an arrow, and it's often pointed to selfish gain. It often doesn't care about my neighbor. It often just wants things for me and not for the benefit of my neighbor, for the glory of God. And he requests, change it. Bend that arrow towards your glory. Incline my heart. So this is a really important prayer. I would encourage you that if this is not a very common prayer uh, in your prayer life, in, especially in, in a 
increasingly desperate kind of way that you're missing the mark. Because Jesus tells us, pray like this. May your will be done. And when the psalmist understands that, so to speak, thousands of years earlier, he asks, Lord, incline my heart. My heart is not inclined to your testimonies. And if everyone, if I took a poll and you had, and you were honest, who feels like their heart's perfectly inclined to love your neighbor, to put your roommate first, to love God, to love his, seek his glory? Whose heart is inclined like that pretty much most of the time? It's just, it's, it's, it's just not. It's ridiculous how much our hearts are inclined towards sin. How quick you are to jump and backstab and gossip and, and lust. And we're so fast. That's just our, the muck we stand in so much of the time. So the psalmist knows this and he prays do that. So internal is one really important under, way to understand that first you have a private heart that needs to be inclined to the Lord. Lord, may your will be done. This is a request Make that happen in my heart. And Jesus, as we will talk about next week or very soon, he talks about daily bread. This is a prayer we're supposed to be praying a lot. <laughs> you don't pray this prayer when you get saved and then God's inclined your heart. He's made, he, now you want his will and you're more or less good to go. Second is external. These are really broad, maybe stupid category titles, but external, external, on earth. <laughs> That's just the basically the emphasis there. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just may your will be done in my heart, as really important as it is. It's vital that you actually think of yourself and not your neighbor when you're praying this, primarily, and first and foremost. When you're thinking of the needs that you have and all your sin, our tendency, or, or I'm calling you out on something, or telling you about this or that sin, your, your tendency is to think of your neighbor, think of your roommate, your family members, how annoying such and such is because they do such and such such a sinner. That's our tendency. So it's super important that we think of ourselves first, but the request is, may your will be done on earth. It's a external, ever-expanding, ever-outward-focused kind of faith and kind of prayer that we live in. And again, you have to wake up. You have to realize that's not our tendency. Our tendency is inward in the most uh, dreadful kind of ways. Our tendency is introspective, and it's not for the benefit of other people. So Jesus says, pray and ask for this. May your will be done. Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in me. Think for other people. That's the natural assumption of this petition. You want it to be done more and more and more. And you recognize that you don't want that enough until you ask for it. Make that the case. So that's a couple of, of things on the nature of God's will and the petition is what we're asking. We are asking that obedience to God's will would increase. Next, he says in heaven, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does he say that for? Obviously, the goal is that what's happening in the heavenly realm right now this immaterial place that will temporarily hold all of believers until one day God remakes everything. God's will is done perfectly. This is what Jesus says. What you want to have happen is have the earth be like how heaven is currently. So a couple things about this. One, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we pray upon is a rock. We pray upon a rock. God's will is a firm foundation. He is immutable. The Lord is. 
He doesn't change. He's absolutely dependable. In heaven is the image that we have, and our image is absolute rock-solid dependability. There is no doubt in heaven to the will of God. There's no doubting of his will in heaven. There's no uncertainty in heaven about the will of God, as we so often experience here on earth. There's no weakness, either in any physical sense, of course, or in spirit, in soul, in character, for crying out loud. None of that exists in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, where there is no weakness, as opposed to where we are currently so very, very weak in so many ways. There's no inability in God. He's absolutely omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He's absolutely all-powerful. This is one of the things transitioning from uh, Jesus is always the answer, Sunday school dodgeball kind of life. Uh, if I can say somewhat feminized um, Jesus and uh, understanding my faith as I was growing up, a transition from, from that to some degree. And one of the things that happened for me is realizing someone told me, you know, mark out the verses in the Bible. It's not the greatest way to read the Bible, but it's a helpful little thing. Mark out the verses that really stick out and make you go, yes, Jesus. I was like, oh, I've never done that before. And so one of the ones I did was when Jesus spoke to the soldiers, they fell back to the ground in fear. It's only in one of the Gospels, and I marked it out. Things like that. The power of God was something I hadn't really contemplated as a, a young boy or a young man. I hadn't really thought about that, how important and central God's power is. He's all-powerful. He can do as he pleases and does. He spoke the world into existence. It thrilled me, and it hadn't before. There was a fire that started to be kindled. Man, he is absolutely capable. That's what we're asking for. All of those things, doubt, uncertainty, weakness, inability, they are absolutely unknown to the Lord. He is absolutely capable. And so we need to know this. This is the point. Pray for that to happen because you want uh, God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ought to think, what is that like? You need to know that. You need to be motivated. We need to be motivated with truth in your heads that thinks of who God is. You need to know him so that when you're praying for things, you can pray with confidence. You know what that means for it to be done on earth as it is in heaven because he's great, because he's powerful. You're praying on a rock that never changes, a rock that doesn't move. Man, if you believe that, to the degree that you believe that, your prayers will be more powerful. They'll be more zealous. You'll be more dedicated to them. So that's one thing. Pray and ask for it to be done as it, in as it is in heaven. There's a lot of things you could say about the nature of God's will being done in heaven. One I chose is that God's will in heaven is always done joyfully. Always done joyfully. There's never begrudging. There's never a murmur. There's never a uh, less than absolutely infinitely satisfying reward and experience of the Lord's will in heaven. Ever. And one day that will be true for new heavens and new earth. will be ever increasing joy for an ever increasing heart able to comprehend it and love it. That's one thing that happens in heaven. God's will is done absolutely joyfully. And this point is so massively important for us. Because if in your head all it comes down to is dry <coughs> duty, and that dry is an important qualifier, dry duty, you're supposed to do what God wants. Your will be done on earth. So I'm supposed to do it. So I'm asking for my heart to do it. 
If that's your motivation, you're way, way off. You have a different God in your head, actively, from who God is. Because in heaven, his, his will is done absolutely joyfully. And so this works its way out in all of reality. Um, the, the desires, the rules, the design that God has put into this world are for our joy, ultimately. Basketball games are designed for a particular way to work. And when they work that way, they are good. <laughs> Sexuality is designed by the Lord to work in a certain way. It's designed that way, like basketball, with rules and limits and things that are one thing and not another. It's designed that way so that when it works, it's great, it's good. We enjoy basketball, for instance, when it's played within the confines. But when it's violated, and let's say it's violated extremely, it's lesser. It's not just wrong. It's lesser enjoyment. If there were no, I don't know if I was talking, maybe if it was Wednesday night, but if there were no rules at all in basketball, let's just say, for instance, or two, and everyone just ran around on a court with a ball, and there's really no actual things going on. No one would pay to see it, right? It would be boring. It would be nothing. It's good because it has rules. It has a design format. But don't let that... Uh, <laughs> that's not just an illustration. It's not just an illustration. That's actually an emblem of who God... That's a, a showing forth of who God is. He's good. Let your will be done is a good request because his will is joyful. In heaven, that's what it's always met as. If your understanding of God is not this, you functionally have a different God in your head, or your heart, I should say. You functionally, maybe a functional atheist. You live as if God isn't good. And I'll just say this is just our huge, huge problem. So that's one thing that God's will is. One quality of God's obeying God's will in heaven is that it's obeyed joyfully. So the request is made for God's will to be obeyed. And there's two reasons, I would say, <clears throat> why you want to request this. One is what I just said, his will is good. You request this because his will is good. His desires, his rules, his commands are good. They're better than not. And two, as I've hinted at strongly, you request it because it's not obeyed. You request it, you ask for it because you don't, and others don't, obviously, right? This is the distinction between the two wills. Moral, uh, prescriptive will of God isn't obeyed a great deal of the time, and so we ask for it. It's good and because it's not obeyed. But it's not just that God's will isn't obeyed. It's not just that there's this void, God's will is not being obeyed. There is actually another will being obeyed. It's never... Uh, there's never a vacuum of will being obeyed. It's either God's will or something else, and that will is our will. It's true 100% of the time. You're either obeying your will or you're obeying God's will. They might be lined up. <laughs> Maybe that'd be the third category. That's, of course, the desires. Your will be done asking for your heart to be uh, what God's heart is. And so here's the simple truth about this, is that the source, therefore, of all of your problems is you. You are the source of your problems. Your real problems. The problems that are the most problematic is yourself. 
the person who is your biggest problem is the person who you look at in the mirror every single day. Jonathan Land made a great deal out of this, good point out of this on Fall Tree. That is right. Who you look at in the mirror is the problem. You do not believe that most of the time. I do not believe that much of the time, most of the time. But it's true. And that's a big deal. So Jeremiah 17.9, if it weren't for the fact that our hearts are awful, this wouldn't be a problem. Jeremiah 17.9 says the, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's desperately sick. Batch that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's deceitful above everything? Your heart. That's what. Who deceives you the majority of the time? Who is it that's deceiving yourself? It's yourself. Understanding that is absolutely essential if you want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. That the person you look at the mirror is your biggest problem. James 4 gets at this pretty intensely. James 4 went through 3. He says this. He asks a rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the question James puts to Christians. What is it? What causes quarrels? What causes fights? Is it not this? That your passions, your desires, are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet you cannot and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. James' logic is very, very clear. You are your biggest problem. What is it that causes quarrels? What is it that causes fights? It's your passions. It's you. It's your heart. That's the problem. We are one big hot mess, in other words. We are a mixed bag of desires all of the time. And our problem is we don't want what God wants. Please hear that and Try, attempt, allow a moment for that to sink in the simplicity of that statement. As basic as a Christian statement as it gets, it is vastly uh, profound and important that you understand that you don't want much of the time, we don't want what God wants. Oh, man. It's not just that you, it's not just that you did a mistake, right? Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I screwed up again. We use all these euphemisms to describe our sin. When, in fact, what's happening is I didn't want what God wanted. You don't want what God wants. Or, to put it a slightly different way, or we do want what God wants, which is namely his authority. We want his authority. We want to be God. This is what happened in the garden. It's what Satan said. The serpent said, oh, no, no, you'll, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. So they tasted it looked good for food. They took and ate. They disobeyed. We don't want God wants, or to put it differently, we do, in fact, want what God wants, so to speak. We want what only he should have, which is authority. So this is huge. When you look in the mirror in the morning, this is our problem. And this mirror is multiplied, of course, all across the world. Ever since the fall of man, this is the case. America, the West, whatever you want to say, isn't unique in this at all. But there is a sort of cultural creed that we have as Americans. And I think the creed is, uh, my will be done. 
This is my attempt at it. I'm not alone. I think that's what our creed is, as a, generally speaking, as a nation, as a people in the Western world, for particular, all sorts of reasons, our creed is, unbeknownst to us half our, most of our lives, is my will be done. And this is a big time problem. Um, we see examples of this. <clears throat> I think this is uh, this creed, my will be done, has been pushed out to the extremes, by the way, as about as far as humanly possible. And uh, I will say, this is actually a, this is a side note, kind of, but it's kind of important for you to start to get, because even though every human being's problem is that we want the authority of God, we want what God wants, if you understand it rightly, we want the authority we ought not to have, even though that's true of every human being, we do dissect and want to exegete, understand a particular cultural reality that we live in, and ask, what's the main poignant idols that happen to be our worst ones? I don't think my will be done are, is always the main ones in every culture. I do think it is in ours. So a couple examples. Some of you may have heard the phrase, the sexual revolution. Who's heard the phrase, sec, the sexual revolution? More than half, half-ish. So the sexual revolution in a nutshell happened in the 60s, and it was a sexual ethic based on a sexual ethic a growing change of mentality that said basically sexually anything goes virtually anything goes and they called it being being liberated being freed free love was a thing quite literally it's fairly self-explanatory you could have uh, casual uh, sex with anyone and everyone and it was you know coming out of the previous few decades it was a, a deal that's not what you did not publicly you didn't celebrate it it was celebrated and of course, the crazy amount of STDs and damage to families and divorces that resulted in the following couple decades were crazy huge. But at the time, it was fantastic because we can do what we want. But the sexual ethic is my will be done. That's what the sexual ethic was. My will be done. Anything goes if I want it. With the only qualification of what? So long as you can do anything you want, so long as what? Someone finished the sentence. Don't hurt someone else. Don't hurt somebody else. That's right. Right? As long as there's consent and you don't hurt anyone else, anything goes. Anything's fine. This is the model that our generation lives by. If you're not aware of that, you need to be aware of that. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, anything is fine. And it's just pushed out to the absolute edge of extreme. It's just like my imagination of fingernails just hanging on over a chasm, over this cliff that just shoots down a thousand feet to your death. And we're just holding on with just the last barely capable qualification of, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, everything else is fine. Right? Anything is fine as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, which, of course, is actually not even true. Everything you do actually does hurt people, even if you don't think it does. But it's just like, oh, my gosh. That's the only ethic you can manage to scrape together is, well, just don't hurt someone. Consent. That's it. Right? Oh, it's so sad. But that's what it was. That was with the 60s. And so the sexual revolution happened. This has affected us. This has a huge effect upon you, whether you know it or not, the 60s tis. It's not that long ago. Your parents lived through it. Most of your parents did. Mine did. And was, you know, like, not six or something. And so, the reality that that was, was living as if they were, and we live this way often, as if we are sexually autonomous. This is in the area of sexuality, it's just as an example, but it applies to virtually everything. 
as if they were sexually autonomous, free from any outside constraint, free from any authority, free from anything over top of them. That's how they live. That's what it means to say, my will be done, is a profession of autonomy. I am my own king. But the reality is, we are not our own. That's the problem. We aren't our own. We belong to someone else. We have a maker. Not to mention the fact that autonomy is a ridiculous lie that the idea that you're not hurting someone else, as I alluded to, the idea that everything you do in private doesn't have an effect upon other people, it's such a lie. It's such a ridiculous lie. It's a damaging, terrible, terrible lie that is going to hurt a lot more people in the coming years and decades. But that was the belief. We're sexually autonomous. We can do anything we want. This leads to other things. One other example, briefly, human abortion. Um, I think this is underneath human abortion. Is, uh has been especially affected by the sexual revolution by a spirit that says, I can do what I want. To such a degree, you push it so far to the extreme that you're willing to sacrifice an unborn child to do what you want. That, I would argue, is very close to the foundation of the problem and the, the philosophy happening in the hearts of abortion-minded people, abortion-minded country. I can do what I want. I've shared this story before, brief story, when I was student teaching. Uh, a gal wanted a high school girl, junior, senior, wanted to have an, got pregnant um, and wanted to have an abortion because she wanted to be on the cheerleading team. So naturally, if you eight months pregnant, it's very, very difficult to cheer, at least compared to not being pregnant, I suppose. That was her rationale. She wanted to be on the cheerleading team. I don't know if she got an abortion, but that was her rationale. And the philosophy underneath that is, I want what I want. I want it, therefore, and she lives in a country in which says, yep, okay, get whatever reason you want, because what you want reigns supreme. You can have an abortion. You can kill that child for your desires, for your will, which is our huge, huge problem. So these are different kingdoms. The Christian kingdom and the secular, if you will, unbelieving kingdom, these are totally different wills that says, my will be done rather than, Lord, your will be done. And you have to see this. You have to ask the Lord for eyes to see this. You have to wake up to the fact that this is always at play. And this is a, has a massive sway on almost everything that we do in our, our lives, in our generation, in our culture, perhaps especially. Me. Have it your way, Burger King says. That's why I posted the Burger King man as the announcement, if you're wondering. Right. That might be a funny illustration, but as I was looking for pictures, and it occurred to me, it really is actually quite apt. That is a really good picture of our culture. Have it your way. That's what we want. I want it my way. It's anti-gospel. Did you know that? It's quite literally the opposite of how Jesus tells you how to live. Burger King slogan. <laughs> and our culture's assumed slogan. That's a big deal. So that's our mere multiplier. This is our culture we live in. This is our philosophy that we're soaked in. This is the belief system and moral ethic that you have been uh, soaked in, raised in, even if your parents were aware of it, for all of your lives. I highly doubt there's any exceptions in this room. That's a really big deal. When you ask a, uh, when you ask a fish what water is like, he looks at you with a puzzled face. Right? What? I mean, what is it like? 
That's just what he knows. He doesn't know any different. And that's very similar for us. This is why it's hard for these things to, to get into our heads and that you actually care. That in your heart, right in this moment, look inside your soul and ask, do I care? <laughs> do I care that much of the time I want my will rather than God's? Do I care that Jesus says, pray like this every day? Lord, your will be done. Change my heart. Incline my heart. Do you care? And the only hope you have is that God would grant it to you. <laughs> That's the only hope. So, a couple things in closing. In addition to praying for God to change my heart, like Psalm 119 says, in addition to asking for God to change my heart, how else can I more obediently do God's will? First answer is actually pray. <laughs> first answer is not bypass the first answer. Actually do it. Can you hear that? You need to actually ask this. And you need to do it more than when you're falling asleep. You need to do it more when you just recite the Lord's Prayer. You need to plead, Lord, incline my heart. You need to get with someone that knows how to pray and ask for help. You need to get on your face. This is massive. This is a daily request Jesus has put before us. Actually do it. Actually pray. Pray, pray, and pray more, and pray more until God finally answers your prayer to, so that he gets glory for your persistence, and grants a change. That change happens. There's Christians in this room, perhaps sitting right next to you, that have had a life-altering experience, that before they gave no rip whatsoever, and all of a sudden the lights went on, and they started to actually care about eternity. They started to actually care about Jesus Christ. They started to love him. They started to have tears over sin. That's happened to people in this room. If that hasn't happened to you, you need to know that. That's a huge deal. It can happen for you. You have to ask for it. 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 It's all over the scriptures. Oh, man, it's important. So I intentionally word that question, you know, whatever, trick question. How else can you obey God's word? But I do think there's lots of other things. The second thing simply to say is you need to know God. You need to know him with your head, with your mind. You need to love him with your heart of what you know. The mind is a very crucial component in all of the stuff that happens in the transformation. You have to know who he is. And so if you want to grow strong as an athlete, you eat healthy. It's one thing you do. If you want to grow strong, you have to eat healthy. So that universal phrase, you are what you eat, is true. You are what you eat, so to speak. And it's the same situation with your soul. It's the same situation with your mind. Your soul is what you feed it. This is a, a rock-bottom sort of foundational important truism that you need to be reminded of. Your soul is what you feed it. Your mind is and your soul is what you actually think upon. And so the question is, what are you feeding your mind with? If you want God's will to be done in your heart and have that influence others and have that happen for others, you need to feed your mind with the right thing. If it's gossip, if you're feeding your mind with gossip, feeding your knowledge of the world with gossip, you'll be a gossip, you'll be bitter, you'll be self-righteous. So what happens with gossipers, self-righteousness, just... You won't truly love anyone and you'll be unbearably difficult for others to love. That's what will happen, right? If you're feeding on endless hours of mindless entertainment and amusement, if you're feeding your mind with endless hours 
of mindless entertainment, mindless entertainment, you'll be hollow. You experience no desire to learn. You'll be void. If it's your common experience of not, I don't really care. I'd rather go watch a movie. That's a terrible experience. It's a very unsatisfying experience. Is it not? Anyone like that experience of not wanting to learn, of not being amazed at the wonders of the world? Anyone enjoy that? You look at, a, you know, whatever, anything. You look at anything and you go, nah. you just don't care. Anyone like that? No. That's what happens when you feed your mind on those things. You won't really have any real thoughts. You won't have any real opinions about anything because you don't really think. You just kind of do. If you feed on sexual stimuli, you'll be self-centered. This is what happens when you're um, feeding on sexual stimuli as an unmarried person. In that way, you'll be self-centered. You'll be uncertain. You'll be weak. You'll be intrinsically narcissistic. That's what pornography does. It's all about you. It's not just icky and gross and grimy and dark. It is that. It's about you. Pornography is all about the person consuming. It has nothing to do, no love, no outward thinking for anybody else. If you feed yourself with those things, that's what will happen. It's also what happens, by the way, for dating for a boyfriend and girlfriend. If you're dating to get a boyfriend or girlfriend and not dating to decide whether you can marry that person, all those things are very, very similar things that happen to you. You can be narcissistic. It's about you. It's about your... Uh, buffet line of what you want to find the perfect woman or man out there to please your interests. It's a pursuit to nowhere but gratification of your own selfish desires. So this is what happens. It's all really bad sounding stuff. But that's what happens when you feed those things. It affects you. You become what you behold. This is just the natural way of God has made. Rather, here's the exhortation, feed on the Lord in all his varied fullness as he's revealed himself in his word and in his world. Feed on him. Lord, your will be done. You want that to happen. Feed on who he is. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Paul says. Think about those things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So that's a very important thing. So I have some news about this. I have some news for about that, about the source of the above thinking. One is bad news. The bad news about that, bad news that you need to hear, is that you can't do those things. It's really bad news. We, generally speaking, suck. Or to put it much more biblically accurately, we are left to ourselves, wicked, self-deceived, self-obsessed, self-righteous. We're either an older brother or a, a flagrantly disobedient, treacherous younger brother. Self-righteous older brother, disobedient younger brother. If you remember the video from last week, that's who we are. That's how the Bible describes us. It's all very, very bad news. And if you have problems... When people talk about sin, they talk about the darkness of the Christian worldview, then you need to um, wake up a little bit because the Bible is very, very clear. That's our natural state. It's bad news. Even if you try your hardest, you'll fall terribly short of, of the Philippians 4 exhortation and promise. Notice what he says at the end there. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. You try your hardest at that, apart from Christ, you'll fail. The good news is, this is good news, 
Because if that's true, that sucks. Go find a different philosophy. Go do something that will improve your life rather than all this darkness, right? But there is actually good news. This is the gospel. This is, this is what all of our Christian faith is meant to be about. The good news is, what's the good news? <laughs> that's all that's true. Jesus can forgive you. And if you already are forgiven, he can renew you and he will renew you. He can remake you. He can cause you, cause spiritual rebirth to happen in your souls. So that you will actually have the power to do those things, to think on those things. The good news is in Jesus, you don't have to, then you can. That's the good news. In Jesus, you don't have to. You have to put out all this energy to do all the stuff that Paul is saying because you can't. And then in Jesus, you can. You have this amazing privilege to think on all that's honorable and all that's delightful, all that's worthy of praise. And an omnipotent God who has the power to grant you a heart increasingly to do so. And the God of peace will be with you. What a ridiculously high promise. It doesn't get much higher than that. So that's the good news. Repentance and faith. The good news is he loves us. And it's exciting. If you think about if our God is all-powerful and he answers prayers and you ask, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done. Father, do that in me. Do that in my neighbor. He answers. He hears your prayer. He actually does, in his supernatural way, affect things in the world. And you have this direct line, we do, to this omnipotent, loving, caring God. So ask him to do it. And then you have to wait. You have to expect him to answer. He might not do it tomorrow, and he might not do it two years from now. But you have to wait and with expectancy. This is an exciting life. The Christian life is a really, really exciting life. It's not necessarily a tripper, constantly high-energy life. That's different. Excitement and high energy are different things. Chipperness and true happiness, true joy are different things. Man, we have a good, good God. So, I'll end there. Let's, let's pray together. Let's thank the Lord for His grace. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit EquipCampusMinistries.org. Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that, in all things, all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.